0: You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering, but we are not
1: murderers.
0: Hi, everybody!
1: Welcome back
0: to Murder Not Murdering. <laughs> oh, god, we are not great at that part. No, we're
1: funny. we're like
0: super we're good at awkward. The, we're good at the research and the murder part. That's what you come here for, anyway.
1: Yes, and then we just naturally banter back and forth. So I guess you guys like that.
0: <laughs> well, I hope so. Uh, please listen again. That's yes. all we
1: please continue to be our fans.
0: <laughs> <laughs> please keep listening, please. Please. For our sanity. Please. Um, so I just wanted to do something really quickly before we get started. Um, I wanted to do a quick PSA, especially for our Washington state listeners. Um, and we posted about it on our Instagram today, but I also wanted to do it on the podcast just in case you didn't see our Insta. Today, I want to tell you about a possible abduction that happened to a friend of mine um, when they were uh, having a snack at a Taco Bell off of exit 20A on I-405 in Kirkland. And again, this happened today. Uh, A white and burgundy van with a taped up taillight appeared to be broken down. My friend is super sweet. The person asked for help and they said they would help them jump their car. So it was a white man. He approached, um, he was in his mid to late thirties with sandy blonde hair. He was a bit overweight and he was wearing a blue dark hoodie with cargo shorts. He also uh, appeared to have his leg wrapped in bandages. Like I said, he asked for a jump. Uh, and as he was tinkering with the car, he said to my friend here, you get in my car and try to start the engine. And at that point, danger signals were going off. It was feeling a bit shady and they didn't want to get into the van. So they looked in and saw that it was very messy, like somebody maybe was living out of it. And my friend suggested that the person just show them what they were doing by the engine and the man could get into his own van to start it. And then the man started acting a little squirrely and he started saying that they would uh, let my friend just leave now and they'll ask somebody else for help which I find really strange because you had somebody there to help you. If you wanted this jump to happen, then why would you be like, I'll just find somebody else because you won't get in my car. That just is weird. So this is an example of somebody that was trusting their gut. And I wanted to let our listeners know the description of the person as well as the description of the van. And again, Kirkland, Washington today and because it made me think, you know, this could have been a predator. My mind was like Ted Bundy. It's Ted Bundy, you know, kind of. Well, the vibe. bandage
1: thing kind of gives that vibe off.
0: Well, and trying to pick somebody up like by the car, you know, I don't
1: well, know. Well, the whole helpless. I'm, I have a bandage on my leg. I'm very, yeah. I'm defenseless. You can I trust just me.
0: I don't think you can ever be too careful. And um, also I bought my friend uh, birdie today. And they told me that they carry a knife with them, which I'm sure would make Stabby Jim very happy. But, <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> he would be proud. But I told them that um, that I think that it's important to have something that's discreet, that you don't have to get close to anybody. So for those of you that haven't got a birdie, it's personal alarm. We talk about it a lot on the podcast. You can use our promo code, not murder15, to get 15% off. But um, I just felt like I it kind of freaked me out. And to hear that that happened today just made me feel like I wanted to get the word out there about what had happened. Um, and again, I I just think having something where you don't have to get very close to anybody is super important. Mm-hmm. It's not really to promote the product at all. I had permission from my friend to share this story. It was just um, kind of scary and crazy to think of, you know, and if there weren't enough people around or something, I don't know kind of kind of freaky but i just thought you know if it stops maybe they try again and it keeps somebody from not stopping to help them or something then mm-hmm. good
1: right and when you say today it's the
0: 29th of april oh sorry yeah i forget that you guys that we record these and people listen other times yes <laughs> and again i don't know maybe this person was on the up and up but if you're feeling danger signals and you're feeling like this doesn't feel right to me, then get the fuck out of there. You don't have to be polite. You don't have to be nice or any of that. Just get the fuck out because you just never know. And I feel like, especially like for me as a woman, I feel like we're kind of brought up to be like helpful and say, sorry, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to apologize for getting the fuck out of a situation that feels shady.
1: Right. Not at all. Like no apologies.
0: No. Uh, Anyway, how's things? (laughs) Good. How about you? Good. How's work? Busy?
1: Yes, we are very busy, but I am loving it.
0: That's good. Busy is good. Yes. Um, I've been busy too. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> I'm going to get started. That's enough of that chit chat.
1: We're super awkward,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we mean well.
0: I kind of have a long case, so I'm just going to jump right in because I don't want it to take forever for all of you.
1: I appreciate that.
0: Mm -hmm. And plus you come here for the murders.
1: Yes, we do.
0: Oh, you, you do. Yeah, (laughs) I do. (laughs) Okay. Now my case this week is one of intrigue violence and involves one of the most incredible stars of our time. This is the Lana Turner murder scandal. To fully understand this case and to be able to formulate your own opinion on what actually happened, you have to start at the beginning. Lana Turner was born Julia Jean Turner on February 8, 1921. She would eventually achieve fame as both a pinup model and a film actress with a career spanning nearly over 50 years. In the mid-40s, she was one of the highest paid actresses in the entire United States and one of MGM's biggest stars, with her films earning more than $50 million for the studio during her 18-year contract with them. Lana's parents had first met while 14-year-old Mildred was visiting Pitcher, Oklahoma with her father, who was inspecting local mines there. John was 24 years old at the time, and Mildred's father objected to the courtship. I mean... I would have too. I get it. We're a 14 year old girl and a 24 year old dude, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Shortly after the two eloped and moved to Idaho, Mildred was four days shy of her 17th birthday. When she gave birth to Lana in Wallace, Idaho, she was the only child of John and Mildred. Her father opened a dry cleaning service and worked in the local silver mines. Unfortunately, the Turner family struggled financially and relocated to San Francisco when she was just six years old, after which her parents had separated. Now, this next part would make a huge impact on Lana's life. On December 14th, 1930, her father was murdered. And that's not even the one I'm covering. He had won some money at a traveling craps game, stuffed his winnings into his left sock and headed for home. He was later found bludgeoned to death with his left shoe and sock missing on a corner near the Dogpatch District in San Francisco. His robbery and homicide were never solved. His His death had a major effect on Lana as she stated, I know my father's sweetness and gaiety, his warmth and his tragedy have never been far from me. Oh, that's really sad. I know. Lana's life didn't get any easier from there. As she frequently lived with family and family friends and acquaintances, so her struggling mother could save money. They moved a lot from Sacramento and throughout the Bay Area. Following her father's death, she lived for a period in Modesto with a family who physically abused her and treated her like a servant. Her mother worked 80 hours per week as a beautician to support herself and her daughter. Lana recalled sometimes living on crackers and milk for half a week. Though she was baptized a Protestant at birth, she attended mass with a Catholic family she was staying with for a while, and she fell in love with the rituals of the church. When she was seven, she converted to Catholicism. She attended the convent of Immaculate Conception and hoped to become a nun. In the mid-30s, her mother developed respiratory problems and the doctors said they needed to move to a drier climate. They settled on Los Angeles. There are two stories about Lana Turner's discovery, the one that Lana told. She was a junior at the Hollywood High School when she skipped a typing class and bought a Coca-Cola at the Top Hat Malt Shop. While in the shop, she was spotted by William R. Wilkerson, a publisher of The Hollywood Reporter. He was instantly attracted by her beauty and physique and asked her if she was interested in appearing in films, to which she responded, I'll have to ask my mother first. With her mother's permission, she was referred by Wilkerson to the actor-comedian-talent agent Zeppo Marx. In December 1936, Marx introduced her to film director Marvin Leroy, who signed her to Warner Brothers in a $50 weekly contract now, in our time, that would be about $492 weekly. Hmm. Not bad.
1: No, not bad, especially since she was so young.
0: Yeah. At this point, she changed her name to Lana Turner. Late In late 1937, Mervyn Leroy was hired as an executive at MGM and asked Jack L. Warner to allow Lana to relocate with him. Mr. Warner obliged, as he believed... Turner would not amount to anything. Big mistake. Huge.
1: <laughs> Huge mistake. <laughs> Huge.
0: She signed a contract with MGM for $100 weekly, which would be about $1,800 today. She was moving on up. She made several movies and completed her studies and graduated from high school that year. Lewis B. Mayer called her the next Jean Harlow. She was experiencing a ton of commercial success and landed the cover of Look magazine. Take that, Mr. Warner. Right. In February 1940, newspapers went wild when she eloped to Las Vegas with a 28-year-old band leader, Artie Shaw. They only briefly knew each other, but Lana said that she was stirred by his eloquence. (laughs) And after their first date, the two spontaneously decided to get married. First date.
1: Sounds about right.
0: (laughs) Their marriage only lasted four months, but was highly publicized. And it led MGM executives to grow a little concerned over Lana's impulsive behavior. I sort of wonder if the fact that her dad died and watching her mom struggle being single maybe spawned that feeling of needing to get married quickly, like Things yeah. changed, So we need to do it now or mm-hmm. something like that. I don't know. I think anyway, you're right. Yeah. Some there's definitely ties to that. Anyway, in the spring of 1940, after her divorce, Lana discovered that she was pregnant. She had an abortion and in the press, they said that she had been hospitalized for exhaustion. She would later say that Artie Shaw treated her and I quote, like an untutored blonde savage, and took no pains to conceal his opinion, which sounds like there was a lot of abuse happening there. I don't know if it was physical, but definitely verbal. Mm-hmm. The following year, she starred in The Ziegfeld Girl, where she co-starred with James Stewart, Judy Garland, and Hetty Lamar. MGM gave her her gave her a raise, and became and she became lifelong friends with Judy Garland, who eventually became her next door neighbor in the 1950s. Oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, during World War II, she became a pinup icon and her image appeared on fighter planes bearing the name Tempest Turner. She raised money and sold $5.25 million in war bonds after a 10-week tour throughout the U.S. with Clark Gable. Wow. Yeah. In 1942, she met her second husband, actor turned Tour. Joseph Stephen Crane, at a dinner party in LA. The two eloped to Las Vegas a week after dating. The marriage was annulled after Lana found out that Steve's previous divorce hadn't been finalized. They did marry in March 1943 in Tijuana after Lana found out that she was pregnant. She filmed a movie in the early part of her pregnancy. Though she wanted multiple pregnancies, she found out that she had RH negative blood which causes fetal anemia and makes it very difficult for her to carry a baby to term. The doctors urged her to have a therapeutic abortion to avoid life-threatening complications, but Lana ignored them and actually made it to full term. She gave birth to a daughter, Cheryl, on July 25th, 1943. Due to Lana's blood condition, Cheryl was born with a near-fatal case of a type of fetal anemia. Lana and Cheryl luckily recovered, and Lana was back to making movies. She was now thought of as a bona fide sex symbol, portraying many femme fatale characters. In August 1944, she divorced Steve, citing that his gambling addiction and unemployment as the primary reason. After the divorce, she continued to make box office hits, including one of her most famous roles as the lead in the postman always rings twice.
1: I've she seen also, that movie. <laughs> yeah.
0: that's. She, I mean, she has a lot of famous movies, but that's probably the one that she's most famous for. I would say.
1: I also have a question on how he can be unemployed and have a gambling addiction.
0: <laughs> you know, you'd be so surprised people. I know anybody.
1: I'm like, dang, how'd he get that?
0: <laughs> well, after the, okay, hold on. She also started taking on more dramatic roles during this period. She became MGM's most popular stars and one of the highest paid women in the United States. She then married Henry J topping Jr. The way he proposed to her was he walked up and put a diamond ring in her martini glass.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I would be like, um, that's gross now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't drink I can't drink my martini anymore. And I have to clean this off before I put it on my finger, but maybe I'm just annoying. In early 1949, she found out that she was pregnant again. Unfortunately, she went into premature labor and gave birth to a stillborn baby boy. After that, she starred in a series of flops, and her personal finances were in shambles. She'd filed for bankruptcy. She began to suffer from chronic depression over her career and financial problems. She attempted suicide in September 1951. She was saved by her business manager, Benton Cole, who broke down the bathroom door and called emergency medical services. Shortly after, she began to work on a new musical and had an affair with her co-star, Fernando Lamas, which ended because he physically assaulted her. Luckily. The studio acknowledged the assault and the contract with MGM was canceled. He was no longer going to work for any of them ever again.
1: Oh, wow. That's actually pretty rare for
0: back then. Uh, For real. She started getting better roles after that and got critical acclaim for the bad and the beautiful. It was a week after the premiere that she divorced her third husband, again, citing gambling and excessive drinking. She seemed to have a type.
1: I was just about to say, it seems like she is drawn to a certain type.
0: Yeah. In September, 1953, she married Lex Barker. After another flop, MGM announced in February, 1956, that it was opting not to renew Turner's contract. She, at this point, had made the studio more than $50 million over the years. Later that year, she discovered she was pregnant with Lex's baby. Seven months into the pregnancy, she gave birth to a stillborn baby girl. This is just heart- heartbreaking. It's like
1: blow after blow for her. I just feel I know. so bad. I know. In July,
0: 1957, she filed for divorce from Lex Barker after finding out that he had regularly molested and raped her daughter, Cheryl.
1: Oh my, course- it just gets worse. I know.
0: According to Cheryl, Lana had confronted Barker before forcing him out of their house at gunpoint. In December, 1957, she starred in Peyton's place and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress. Though she didn't win, she was grateful for the nomination. While shooting the film, The Lady Takes a Flyer, she began receiving phone calls and flowers from mobster, Johnny Stopinato. But he was using the name John Steele He had close ties to the L.A. underworld and the gangster Mickey Cohen, and he feared that she wouldn't date him knowing who he he was. He pursued her aggressively, which is like big red flags. But Lana was intrigued and began dating him casually. A friend of hers told Lana who Johnny actually was, and she confronted him. He said, if I'd ever revealed Who I really was, you would have never had anything to do with me. Now that I have you, I'll never let you go.
1: Wow. (laughs)
0: Wow. She tried to break off the affair, but he was not easily deterred. Over the course of a year, they had violent arguments, physical abuse, and many breakups. She said that on one occasion, he had drugged her and took nude photos of her while she was unconscious, potentially to use as blackmail. In September 1957, Johnny visited Lana, where she was filming Another Time, Another Place, co-starring Sean Connery.
1: Oh, man.
0: You're welcome for that. (laughs) Everything was initially happy, but they soon began fighting again. Johnny was a jealous guy and became suspicious when Lana would not allow him to visit the set, and during one fight, he violently choked her. Lana and her makeup artist Dell Armstrong called Scotland Yard in order to have Johnny deported. But Johnny got wind of the plan and he showed up to set with a gun, threatening her and Sean Connery. Connery answered by grabbing the gun out of Johnny's hand, twisting his wrist, and then punching him in the face, causing him to run off upset. Lana later What a
1: badass.
0: Right. Lana returned with two Scotland Yard detectives to the rented house where she and Johnny were staying. The detectives advised Johnny to leave and escorted him out of the house to the airport where he had boarded a plane back to the US. Now, I really wish that that was the end of their story together. But on the evening of March 26, 1958, Lana attended the Academy Awards with her daughter, Cheryl. Johnny was angry she didn't take him with her. And waited for her to return home that evening whereupon he physically assaulted her around 8 p.m on friday april 4th johnny arrived at lana's rented beverly hills home the two began arguing heatedly in the bedroom and johnny threatened her her 14 year old daughter Cheryl, and her mother lana said tonight mister i'm giving you your walking papers i'm through with you it's over But this only enraged Johnny more. Cheryl was terrified for her mother's life and ran to get a nine-inch kitchen knife. She listened behind the door. Johnny said, you'll never get away from me. I'll cut you good, baby. You'll never work again. And don't think that I won't get your mother and kid. Then she opened the door and she saw Johnny with his hand above her mother, ready to strike her. Cheryl stepped past her and stabbed him in the stomach. He said, my God, Cheryl, what have you done? And collapsed on the floor. Lana thought that she had just punched him, but then she saw the blood begin to pool on his shirt. The knife had pierced his aorta. Lana knew how bad this all looked. Her mother called the family doctor who tried to give mouth-to-mouth to Johnny as well as a shot of adrenaline, but he was pronounced dead. The doctor advised Lana to call her lawyer. She called Jerry Geisler. The lawyer who Hollywood turned to when it had to escape the consequences of its worst crime. Cheryl had called her father, Steve Crane, and he arrived at the house just before the police and ambulance crew, along with a huge crowd of press and photographers. One reporter named Jim Bacon tricked his way into the house by pretending to be with the coroner's office. He said he heard Lana talking to police chief Clinton Anderson, who was a personal friend of hers. He said that Lana was begging him to let her take the blame for the stabbing, but Anderson wasn't having any of it. Besides that, Cheryl had already confessed to her father, saying, I did it, Daddy, but I didn't mean to. He was going to hurt Mommy. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. These words were in the papers the very next day. More than 100 reporters and journalists attended the April 12, 1958 inquest, described by attendees as mere riotous to see Lana and her teenage daughter accused of killing Johnny Stopinato. In court, Lana described a running argument going back to their recent trip to London for a filming engagement. In their hotel, she said, Johnny held a razor to her face and threatened to disfigure her. She recalled him saying, he would cut you a little now to give you a little taste of it. On the day of the fatal confrontation, she testified, she tried to prepare her daughter for a stormy night. I'm going to end it with him tonight, baby. It's going to be a rough night. Are you prepared? When she told Johnny it was over, she said he grabbed me by the arms and started shaking me, cursing very badly, and saying that if I if he said jump, I would jump. If he said hop, I would hop. And I would have to do anything and everything he told me, or he'd cut my face or cripple me. And if it went beyond that, he would kill me and my daughter and my mother. Turner was unable to shield her daughter from the ugly scene. I broke away from his, his holding, my, holding me and I turned around to face the door. My daughter was standing there and I said, please, Cheryl, please don't see any of this. Don't listen. Please go back to your own room. Cheryl returned to her room, but testified that she could still hear the raised voices as Lana told Johnny, Don't ever touch me again. I, I am absolutely finished. This is the end. I want you to get out. I was walking towards the bedroom door and he was right behind me. I opened it and my daughter came in. I swear it happened so fast. I truthfully thought she had just hit him in the stomach. The best I can remember, they came together and they parted. I never saw the blade. After four hours of testimony and approximately 25 minutes of deliberation, the jury deemed the killing a justifiable homicide. Cheryl remained a temporary ward of the court until April 24th, when a juvenile court hearing was held, during which the judge expressed concerns over her receiving proper parental supervision. She was ultimately released to the care of her grandmother and was ordered to regularly visit a psychiatrist along with her parents. Even though Lana and her daughter were exonerated of any wrongdoing, the public opinion on the event was varied with numerous publications saying that Lana's testimony at the inquest was a performance. Life magazine published a photo of Turner testifying in court along with stills of her in courtroom scenes from three of her films. What? Yeah. Johnny's family sought a wrongful death suit of of $750,000 in damages against both Lana and her ex-husband, Steve Crane. In the suit, Johnny's son alleged that it was actually Lana Turner who had been responsible for his death and that her daughter had just taken the blame. There was also a man outside the courthouse saying, it's a lie. The girl was in love with him. There was jealousy between her and her mother. He was a gentleman. That's more than the rest of you Hollywood people are. Leading further into this theory, the murder weapon had been found in the sink of Lana's ensuite bathroom. But interestingly, there was no fingerprints on the handle of the knife, just a bloody smudge. Some people are still convinced to this day that Lana Turner actually killed Johnny. But in Cheryl's book, she maintained that that it was she who stabbed him and that on occasions he had actually physically abused her and molested her. The suit suit against the family was settled out of court for a reported $20,000 in May 1962. From what I understand, this was because there was a delay before the police were called. Lana would go on to have success again in films and TV. As a teenager, Cheryl privately came out as a lesbian to her parents who supported her. Despite this, Cheryl ran away from home multiple times and began experimenting with drugs. Worried that she was dealing with the repercussions of killing Johnny, Lana sent her to the Institute of Living in Connecticut for treatment. Lana would marry and divorce three more times. She worked until she was diagnosed with throat cancer in 1992. She had a successful surgery, but the cancer returned in 1994, and she passed away in 1995. Upon graduating high school, Cheryl briefly worked as a model before entering the restaurant business, working in the Luau, a Polynesian restaurant owned by her father. She would later study restaurant management and hospitality at Cornell University, hoping to later become a restaurateur. In 1970, she began dating model Joyce Leroy, whom she was introduced by Marlon Brando. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) At a party in the 1980s, Crane shifted her focus, her career focus to real estate, and she became a broker in Hawaii and Palm Springs, California. In 1988, she authored a memoir titled Detour, a Hollywood story. She published her second memoir in 2008 titled Lana, the memories, the myths, the movies, which focused on her mother. And in 2011, she published her first fictional work, The Bad Always Die Twice. Oh Wow. <laughs> in, in November 2014, she married her longtime partner and they had been together for four decades at that point. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Cheryl still works as a real estate agent as well. As uh, as I have found up until 2018, but she might still be a real estate agent. That was just the last information I had for her. My sources were Wikipedia, all that is interesting.com the LA times and morbidology. So what do you think? Do you think it was Lana or her daughter?
1: You know, it's hard to say, but I think that it was her daughter.
0: That's what I think too. I mean, I think it's weird that there weren't any prints on the knife. That was definitely a fact that I was like, hmm. But I think she also was panicking and mm-hmm. I'm just talking to that lawyer. And yes,
1: I totally do. I think that.
0: But I believe she was the story.
1: Conflicted. Yeah, I think she was conflicted that if she wanted to take the fall for her daughter.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that when they had talked about that, um, that reporter that snuck into the house and overheard her saying that she wanted to confess instead, then that to me, because that was overheard and that was her saying it, and it wasn't like meant to be heard by anybody else, that it feels like that's just what happened. Mm -hmm. I just feel so bad. Cheryl had a really tough childhood to adulthood. And then luckily now she's seems happy. So that's great, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of crazy. And it's funny because I don't think that um, I even knew about this until I was just randomly looking at murders and that came across this whole story.
1: Yeah, I don't think I honestly had heard of it either.
0: Yeah. And I'll post um, pictures from the crime scene. Um, so be we'll put a little uh, warning, but there is pictures from the actual crime scene and also pictures of Lana in court. and. Um, And a picture of her and her daughter, who is legitimately the most freaking gorgeous lady ever. Like, I don't know why she briefly worked as a model, because she is stunningly beautiful.
1: She probably hated it.
0: (laughs) Probably. I found it really interesting. Also, I kind of think I want to try The Bad Always Die Twice. I'm always looking for a new book anyway. Might be interesting.
1: You should give it a whirl.
0: Anyway, that's my case this week. And I will be back next week with a current like new case. Just what I know. Why are you
1: treading on my territory? I'm
0: going, I'm I'm getting right all up in there. (laughs) So be ready. There'll be something new next week. Well, not new, but it'll still be murder, but it'll be a newer one from me. (laughs) Uh Surprise the um, anyway we'll be we're gonna hear from our sponsor and we will be right back
1: and we're back what everybody missed during the break was me showing Aaron my mad skills of uh-huh. a british accent
0: yeah like um, i said
1: last week when Aaron was doing her accent maybe just i be would be happy that it wasn't me because i am horrible at
0: accent i have no idea where that was from like, it was British. I, <laughs> yep.
1: British. Brit British.
0: Nope. nope British. Stop. 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 That's enough. That's enough now. We don't have to hurt the people's ears.
1: Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I'm just okay. so good at it.
0: So good. Oh my god. It was like so good.
1: I know. No one so. will know I'm not from Britain. Britain. Oh. No. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> man oh I surprised myself
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah <Yep. laughs> I don't know why there's a rolling R in that but okay
1: it's it is what it is don't judge that's it's what it-
0: British, <laughs> British. Oh, no. come on
1: Margarita don't oh. tell me that
0: <laughs> that's true that was that was my name when we were in Spanish class together. but it was
1: also my name <laughs>
0: That's right. We
1: Margarita wanted to. <laughs> because to let everybody know, we started out in separate Spanish classes. We did. We and did. That's I was true. Margarita and mine, and she was Margarita and hers. And then when we got to this year two, yeah, they put us in the same class together, which was stupid on their part. But then we yeah. were who was Margarita dose I don't remember.
0: I have no idea.
1: One of us was Uno and one of us was Dose. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was was nice
1: it was it was was pretty funny oh man that (laughs) class was good (laughs) oh
0: we had the best teacher
1: we did holbert she was so nice she was
0: so nice she She was was so
1: nice i love She always had
0: us like belting shakira songs Uh i just loved her
1: to this day shakira makes me think of her (laughs) yeah
0: yeah Oh, and she would get into it too. Ah, uh, she was a great teacher. Love. She her. was. She really was.
1: I think she's still teaching too.
0: Shout out to Miss Holbert.
1: Maybe you will hear this podcast and remember us too. The margaritas in your life.
0: Oh my god, we probably <laughs> made her drink margaritas. Anyway, we're gonna get started on Autumn's case now.
1: Yes, we are gonna start on my case, and I wanted to say that I research this case and it was very important to me to get it out. And I'm sitting here today and I listen to podcasts while I work. And the podcast came up from a well-known podcast that I really enjoy listening to called Going West. And they released their episode today and it's the same case.
0: <laughs> it's so upsetting when that happens.
1: I know. I'm like, man, I just put in a lot of work do I still do it and then we decided I would because it's about a missing person and the more people that hear it the better so yeah
0: and you listened to it right yes
1: i listened to theirs and they had about the same information i did um maybe a little more a couple of details that were different but i figured that not everyone listens to their podcasts or not everyone listens to ours so the more people that hear about it the better
0: Yeah, and I think also, I mean, like we've covered cases that other podcasts have covered too. Oh, for sure. Perspective, a different take on. Yeah, I don't. I don't see it being a big conflict. That no, and
1: our cases aren't always original. Like we've heard them on podcasts. It's just funny timing that we're both releasing them the same week.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the same week.
1: I will get started, and it's the disappearance of Logan Schindelman. Oh. Logan Drew Schindelman was born on June 27, 1996, in Olympia, Washington. He was conceived when his Saudi Arabian native father was visiting on a business trip. His father left the States before he was born, and the two never had a relationship. He was raised in Tumwater, Washington, by his maternal grandma, Virginia Gabo, becoming her legal dependent alongside his older sister, Chloe, when his mother, Hannah Schindelman, moved to Seattle to attend art school. Although Hannah did live nearby in Olympia, Washington, on and off for most of Logan's life. So she was a part of their life.
0: Well, that's good. It was
1: said that the reason why his grandma took custody was because They needed to put them on medical, and she was more stable than her daughter was financially. So it made sense at the time, and she remained a big part of his life.
0: That's good. In
1: 2015, Logan graduated from Tumwater High School, where he had been a star defensive back on the school's football team. He was an excellent student and was well-liked. His fellow classmates said he was normal, happy, and popular. He also loved poetry and music. His grandma stated that he had experienced an identity crisis in his teenage years due to being mixed race. Mm. His mother Hannah was half white and half black, and his father was a Saudi native, and Logan was raised by his white grandma. So she said that he was just really confused about his heritage.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of people that have trouble being able, people of mixed race that have trouble figuring out where they fit in, Mm -hmm. you know, into things and how to identify themselves. That's, you know, that's definitely been widely uh, talked about. Mm -hmm. Especially since he didn't know his dad.
1: So he has no, he has no. Like
0: Like cultural ties mm and all of
1: that. Yes, exactly. After graduation, he attended Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, 300 miles away from Tumwater. Logan only completed one year at the college before he decided it just wasn't for him, and he dropped out and moved back home with his grandma and sister. Logan had been an excellent student in high school but he had focused more on social events and gatherings than studying at college. His grades had suffered and this was the biggest reason he had dropped out. He worked a couple odd jobs, including a laundry facility and did labor on his great aunt Mary's farm. After moving back, his grandma stated that she was aware he had been smoking marijuana and she was worried it was causing him to be paranoid. She stated he was kind of at a loss with what he was going to do with his life. On the morning of Thursday, May 19th, 2016, 19-year-old Logan and his grandma, Virginia, chatted in the kitchen while the two got ready for their jobs. Virginia recalled the conversation, saying he was really nervous, which he isn't usually, She also said that he told her that he had an epiphany and they had planned on continuing the conversation later that evening after work, Hmm. but Logan never arrived home that evening.
0: That's what I was worried about. Mm -hmm.
1: Virginia tracked his cell phone and saw that it was pinging near Olympia. At this point, she assumed that he was visiting with his mother, Hannah, and called it a night. He was 19, so it wasn't like she needed to know exactly where he was. He was an adult.
0: Like, Oh, he's he's probably with his mom. It makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah.
1: Yep. The following day, still not having heard from Logan, Virginia began to worry. She had Chloe, Logan's sister, ask their mom, Hannah, if she had seen him or if he was there. When Hannah let Chloe know he was not and she hadn't seen him, That's when Virginia went to the Thurston County Police Department to file a missing person report. However, the police department was closed for the weekend. Legit didn't know that was a thing. (laughs) Did you? I didn't know that. I mean, I guess Tumwater is kind of a small town.
0: They have to have emergency services are available.
1: Right. She said she was concerned. She was concerned enough to want to file a police report, but was still hoping that he would turn up over the weekend. So she did not call in emergency to 911 at the time.
0: Yeah.
1: Virginia spent the weekend driving around looking for Logan with no luck. On Monday, May 23rd, she returned to the station and filed the missing persons report. Immediately, she was notified that a car matching the description she had given them was impounded on May 20th. The Black 1996 Chrysler Sebring had been found abandoned on southbound I-5 at milepost 92 between Tumwater and Maytown. The car was confirmed to be Logan's, and the impound lot directly turned it over to Virginia. Inside, they found Logan's cell phone, wallet, debit card, driver's license, and $25 in cash.
0: Yeah. I don't like any of that.
1: No, knowing her, Obviously, grandson, it's not,
0: it's not a robbery at this mm-mm. point.
1: And if he was going anywhere, he's going to yeah, take his phone, with you. his Your wallet, ID. his debit card, yeah, cash money, like he would have taken yeah. that. Knowing her grandson, she knew something was not right. Logan's uncle, Mike, was a retired Thurston County Sheriff, and he immediately assisted in organizing a search for his nephew. The search focused on a two-mile radius surrounding the area where Logan's car had been found, specifically in the woods next to the shoulder of the freeway. Yeah. They searched on foot and by air but they found no signs of Logan. Hmm. In June, 2016, his uncle told NBC news, the area is extremely thick and brushy. I've spent hours out there searching myself. Canines are brought in to search and it's been covered extensively, but nothing has been found. Shortly after Logan was reported missing, several witnesses came forward to the Thurston County police stating they had witnessed Logan's car on the freeway the morning of May 20th. The first call was a woman driving on the freeway that morning. She reported seeing Logan with two Caucasian men standing at the back of his car, which was parked on the right shoulder of the freeway near exit 95. She said she saw the car in the same location when she was driving home that evening, but this time the hood was lifted and no one was visibly present. She described one of the men as being six feet tall, thin with blonde hair and a bowl cut and wearing a tank top and jean shorts that were too small for him. The other man was described as having shoulder length, blonde hair, wearing a flannel shirt with jeans. Please have released a sketch of these men and I will have it posted on our social media. The second call was from three separate individuals around 2 p.m. reporting a car matching Logan's drifting across the lanes of I-5 between Tumwater and Mayton, near the mileposts where Logan's car had been discovered. The witnesses reported that the car veered across three lanes toward the center divider, hitting the concrete barrier and stopping. No one one appeared to be driving the car. A truck driver passing by reported seeing a white man with brown or red hair, jumping out of the car's passenger side and running into the woods on the side of the freeway. Later in the evening on May 20th, There was a sighting of a naked teenager in the area. The teenager never was identified. The the police department stated, we thought that might have been Logan. And so they did initiate a search using dogs. They didn't locate anything. Could have been Logan. Could have been anybody. Yeah. Having still not found Logan, the family decided to hire a private investigator. Having such little information to go on, it didn't go far. Because Logan's car had been impounded and not processed by a crime lab, any potential evidence from the car was rendered unusable.
0: Yeah, that's what I was worried about. Mm -hmm.
1: They did use his cell phone records to track his movements on the morning of the 20th. It showed Logan traveled towards I-5 South. He then turned around and headed north before reversing direction again and headed south on I-5 and eventually stopping where the car was found abandoned.
0: That's weird.
1: Super weird. As of today, Logan Schindelman has been missing for five years and 11 months. He was last seen wearing a white shirt, blue jeans, a black windbreaker, and possibly a pair of Nike tennis shoes. My sources were Wikipedia, ID Channels Disappeared, Going West Podcast, NBC News, Fox Q13, Como News, and Seattle Times.
0: Wow, that's really sad. What do you think happened? No idea. I mean, really no idea. And I mean, it's really hard to say with the one person that saw the two white guys, if that was even him. Yeah. I don't know, or or that maybe they just saw something else, you know. It's God, just so really
1: suspicious. Not... It's just so weird because it's there were multiple suspicious. witnesses that saw his car and called nine one one before he had even been reported missing. So it's like they're they're like credible well, because the thing,
0: yeah. The thing that strikes me though is the the epiphany that mm-hmm. he said to his grandma that he. Was had an epiphany and they were going to talk about it later. Mm -hmm. Which means like, he wouldn't have said that if he wasn't planning on coming home, firstly.
1: 100%.
0: Secondly, it seemed like there was like, he had planned to meet somebody somewhere or something. Something was in the works, Mm -hmm. you know? I also don't think that that Pot made him so paranoid. (laughs) No, I don't either.
1: I don't think that that would have been the situation either.
0: In case anybody wonders, we are from Washington and, uh, and marijuana is legal here.
1: Yes. So it's, it's not, there's not
0: really much of a stigma anymore to any of it.
1: No. And I just don't, I don't think that that had anything to do with anything, no. but his grandma did mention it. So it was yeah. something that I had to say, but I'm just
0: curious. I'm really curious on what, what, what could, could have, have possibly happened. happened. Yeah. I mean, and the naked person, that's a weird
1: Mm -hmm. you know like like, what coincidental maybe but like
0: maybe i mean it's hard to say it's small town small area so mm -hmm. i don't know it's It's really yeah it's
1: sad like where is he like where is this young man
0: yeah and you'll have the you'll have the pictures and um and everything up on the instagram page yes yes
1: and i just figure that the more information we get out there, the more we talk about things like this, somebody somewhere knows something.
0: Yes. And even if it, you know, and hopefully that it just means that he lives alive. Yeah. And he lives, you know, like in the Bahamas or something,
1: right? Like maybe he decided that he wanted to find out more about his roots. They did contact his biological father and he's not there, but yeah, you know,
0: it's just, um, it's just, I have no idea. The other thing that, you know, I was thinking too, and, and I hate to stereotype, but when you were saying tall, blonde haired, I was like, was it some sort of hate crime or something Mm. like that? Could have been, I don't know. It definitely could have been, I don't know. He was a
1: really handsome young man too. Yeah. He was very handsome. When I saw the pictures, it kind of hit home because of, you know, my stepson, like he's around that age. And I was just like, dang. Yeah. When a promising young life, you know,
0: it's always hard when it's someone young because it is, it is such a, it's such a loss. People that don't get to live their life unless he is. I mean, again, we don't know. Yeah. We it's have so no idea Something like this. There's you absolutely
1: know, no evidence that he's dead, but there's no evidence that he's alive
0: either. Yeah, It's very extraordinarily suspicious to me. Yeah. It's just, and there's not that much
1: information. That's why it was so short. I really, really nothing to go off of.
0: I really wish they'd have been able to process the car. I know. I feel like there's like something key in there or something. I don't know. Hairs, fiber, something. Something. I know
1: for sure. I definitely thought if he was spotted
0: riding in a car with other people, then it's like, hmm, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I agree. It's just really sad. It is really sad. Like, where is he?
1: And it's always, it's always when there's an unsolved case to me it's always a mission in my head. I'm like
0: someone somewhere, there
1: has to be an answer. Like people don't just disappear into thin air.
0: Well, and people don't always keep their secrets forever.
1: No, that's a very good point.
0: Mm -hmm. Somebody will say something,
1: somebody will, somebody would say something to somebody they trusted and then they will betray that person. And then that person will be like, F you. And they'll tell their secret.
0: And I will 100% hope that that's exactly how that plays out.
1: Yes, me too. Somebody somewhere is going to squeal on whatever happened. So you better be ready.
0: Yep. And I'm glad that it's across multiple podcasts right now, because you know what? That just means that it's getting so much more exposure.
1: Mm -hmm, I agree.
0: So here's hoping. Yeah, I did. I did notice, too, that uh, we had a connection with the fact that uh, Cheryl also was um, was uh, taken care of by her grandmother.
1: Right, and then the laundry, the, laundry, the laundry facility. I thought the same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, the laundry thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just kind of. There's our there's our little connect. But um, I think that was really good. Again, check out the Instagram page for information from both of our. Cases tonight. Yes.
1: Oh, and anyways, you know what, just check out our Instagram page. That's where we always have updates if we're having a podcast come out late, mm-hmm. or if there's if we're on a break.
0: Yeah. We and just then like, like today, through there. today, when we talked about the possible um, abduction of a friend of mine. Mm-hmm you know, we put that information out there right away so that it can spread. Cause you just never know. You
1: just never know. And so, I mean, that could have been a case like this, like maybe Logan pulled over and helped somebody else with a car. You exactly. never know. You and never then know. they abducted him and we have yeah. never seen him again. So like, honestly, we don't know.
0: We don't know. That could so have I, happened
1: to your friend and I all could've. they
0: were doing was enjoying some Taco Bell. And trying to and tried to help somebody,
1: right? They were being a kind human and eating some yum yum Taco Bell.
0: Yeah, Autumn, are you trying to get us sponsored by Taco Bell?
1: I mean, (laughs) I wouldn't turn Taco Bell down.
0: (laughs) I I do love me
1: some cheese quesadillas from there.
0: I hadn't had Taco Bell in years until, like, I don't know, was a year ago. Uh, me and my friends were hanging out drunken, drunkenly. And we had, um, we had it like Uber eats to the house.
1: Heck yeah, man. That's honestly, I will have no shame in my Taco Bell game. I love me. I love me a quesadilla. I love me some chips and cheese. I'm so sorry, but it is so good.
0: Hmm. Anyway, outside of the (laughs) Taco Bell conversation, (laughs) Do follow us on Instagram because we do keep a lot of updates on there, and yes, get to see all these behind the scenes things with all the pictures from. Mm-hmm.
1: Cases. We do work hard on them too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: we like to make them visually pleasing for you.
0: Okay, um, <laughs> but you can also um, we also are looking for suggestions of mm-hmm. cases, so please do DM us on Instagram or you can email us at info at murder, not And I think those are all the things that I say at the end.
1: I think you've (laughs) nailed it.
0: Nailed it. Never better.
1: Never. Um, You've never been better.
0: (laughs) better. Uh, So we will see you next week with new cases and me with a new case, new timey, new timey case. So check that out. And Autumn won't do an accent. I promise.
1: (laughs) Erin, you can't stifle my creativity.
0: Uh yeah, I edit, so I sure can.
1: Damn. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. I mean, that's I enough mean, of us.
1: <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't care enough to learn how to edit because that would be really, really painful for us. So I'll let you keep it.
0: Cool. All right. We are gonna <laughs> see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Uh bye. Bye.